The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. Our scripture reading comes from Matthew 6, 5 through 9. Give you a few seconds to turn there. Matthew 6, 5 through 9. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 on this, the fourth Sunday of the Lenten season. Uh, This season, it leads us, or you could say it invites us into worship of the resurrected Christ. And last week, as we started into Matthew 6, we noticed that this chapter is really doing the same thing. It's inviting us into worship of Jesus. It's inviting us into real worship while simultaneously warning us about empty worship. And in our passage this morning that we just heard read, both that warning and that invitation that we've already seen, both that warning and that invitation get amplified in this passage. The warning gets bigger The invitation gets clearer, and we need to see both. We need to see both so that we will know how, how to heed the warning and answer the invitation. So let's jump right in. Begin reading with me in Matthew 6 and verse 5. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, hypocrites. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So, if you were here last week, then this entire passage should sound oddly familiar. In fact, it should sound exactly like our passage from last week. Except for the fact that Jesus has swapped from talking about almsgiving, that's what we saw last week, to now he's talking about prayer. If you felt that as I read that, you are 100% correct. I mean, you can read straight through the two examples. They are mirror images of one another because Jesus is still doing what he was doing last week. He's warning us about the empty worship of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their Their worship practices were empty because they were merely external. It was, it was all the action of almsgiving, the action of prayer. It was all external action devoid of any internal affection for God. They just did what they did in order to appear, to look righteous. And if you recall, throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been inviting us into a greater righteousness, a whole person righteousness, internal and external, where our actions flow forth out of real, authentic, genuine affection. This is still what Jesus is doing right here in Matthew chapter 6, but now he's doing it with respect to worship. Jesus is warning us about the empty, unrighteous worship of the scribes and Pharisees, and he's inviting us into real, righteous worship. And to do that, he gives us three really practical examples. Almsgiving, prayer, 
and fasting. Last week, we looked at almsgiving. And what we saw there, we are now seeing the exact same thing, starting in verse 5, about prayer. The exact same thing. Why? I mean, Jesus is repeating what he just said. It's, 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 like, it's like he wants to review already and really hammer home. So he wants to review and really hammer home that what he just said about almsgiving, that can apply to any act of worship. Not just almsgiving, any act of worship. Even one as intimate as prayer. And so I'm like, all right, well, all right, Jesus. Review it for us then. Hammer it home. What did you say through the example of almsgiving that you want to say again through the example of prayer? Look at it again. Opening words of verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. In other words, don't do this. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't, don't do what they do. If you recall from last week, we said all three of these examples, uh, almsgiving, prayer, fasting, all three of them, Jesus is going to give us a negative side, don't do this, and a positive side. Instead, do this. And if you remember... From last week, we said both the negative side and the positive side, they all have a when, a what, and a why. So right here, verse 5, we're getting the negative side of this example of prayer. Don't do this. And the negative side, it's got a when, a what, and a why. Let's see those one at a time. First, the when. Jesus says, when you pray. When you pray. In, a, in first century Israel, that Jews prayed much in the same ways that we do. Uh, they prayed in public. They prayed in private. They prayed corporately with everybody. They prayed individually. They prayed spontaneously, saying what was in their heart. They prayed formally through written liturgical prayers. That's what the Psalter is. It's a, it's a prayer book, a song book. They prayed at spontaneous times. They prayed at set times during the day, just like we pray spontaneously, and at set times, before meals or before bed or whenever. They, they prayed in nearly all the ways. The, the one thing they didn't do that we do is they didn't pray silently. That was considered weird. They also didn't read silently. Everybody read aloud. That's beside the point. We don't even talk about any of that. The point is, they prayed in much in the same ways that we do. But no matter what the particulars are of how one is praying, when you pray, you always have the same aim. Namely, communication and communion with God. Prayer should be obvious, but prayer is aimed at God. And I don't just mean the external act, like we pray to God, we don't pray to people. I don't just mean the external act is aimed at God. I mean the internal affection. That's why I said that the aim of prayer isn't just communication with God, it's communion. It's communion with Him. This is, this is action and affection. I communicate with God, I commune with Him, ultimately so that I will be drawn closer to Him and conform to His will. That's what prayer is, but that's not what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing. That's not their aim when they pray. And this is where we need to see the second thing of this negative example, the what. We... When they pray, what? What is it that the scribes and the Pharisees are doing? Look at it. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. When they pray, 
What are the scribes and the Pharisees doing? Exact same thing we saw them doing with almsgiving in both the synagogues in a corporate setting and in the streets in an individual setting. What are they doing? They're putting on a hypocritical show. And they pray they're acting like they are worshiping God while actually wanting others to worship them, glorify them, praise them. They're acting like they're all about God's glory when in reality they are actually about their own glory. They're acting like they're seeking righteousness when really they're just seeking recognition. Is that not what the text says? They do what they do so that they may be seen by others. This is the third thing we need to see. This is the why. Why do the scribes and the Pharisees pray in order to be seen by other people? Because they want the reward of recognition. Do we? That's the difficult question that we wrestled with last week. But think about it here, even in relation to something like prayer. I think when we talk about something like almsgiving, we can see, oh, I see how that could be this ostentatious display for other people so that they might praise me. But prayer, prayer we think of as very personal, very intimate. But even here, Jesus is saying that prayer can be done as a performance to seek the reward of recognition from others. Do we, do, do we put our spirituality on display? Like, do do we pray? Not because we want the reward of communicating and, communi- and communing with God, but because we want the reward of, rec- of being seen as spiritual, super spiritual. Jesus says if that's all the reward we want, we'll get it. And that's all we'll get. That's what he says about the scribes and the Pharisees at the end of verse 5. Look at it. Truly I say to you, they have received. They have received. It's over. They got it all. Temporary and it's gone. They have received their reward. The reward of recognition. A fleeting, temporary reward that verse 19 tells us is like a treasure that will rust and rot. Shades, do you see? Jesus is warning us. He is warning us not to worship in this way because ultimately it's empty even if it feels fulfilling in the moment. That reward of recognition rusts, rots, it it flees, it's temporary, it will end up ultimately empty. Instead, he warns us against that, and instead he invites us into real worship. And it's reward that isn't empty, it's full. It's reward that isn't temporary, it's forever. Jesus invites us into real worship that is full for. Ever. That's what we see in the when, what, and why of the positive side of this example. Look at it with me, verse 6. But when you pray, here's the positive, here's what you do. Go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So right here, see the when. The what and the why of the positive side. The when's the same as last time. When you pray, all right, cool. So what's the what? When we pray, what are we to do? Jesus says, go into your room. The Greek word right here really indicates an inner room, a storeroom, if you will. Think of it like a, a, a broom closet. First century housing, like every room in the house had windows because they didn't have light bulbs. They had oil lamps, but you still needed to maximize natural light. And so usually there would only be one room with no windows and it would be some type of inner closet. 
This is actually where we get our term from, prayer closet. You ever heard anybody talk about, I've got to go in my prayer closet kind of thing? Jesus right here isn't meaning this, I don't think he's meaning this that literally. I actually think Jesus means this to be funny. Jesus got jokes. They just don't land in the, you know, I guess they only land in the first century. But just like we saw him doing last week, he's painting a picture with his words. And the picture he's painting is one of going to extreme lengths to not be seen. Like it's basically like he's saying, squeeze into the broom closet. Like Jesus never actually did this himself. He's not giving you a little picture of what to do. He's giving you something like squeeze into the broom closet, you know, close yourself in the kitchen cabinets if you've got to. And and why? Because, because here's the point, you don't want the temporary empty reward of recognition. You don't care about being seen except by the one who is unseen himself. Your father who is in secret, he's unseen. Why do you got the need to be seen? The God of the universe is unseen. Your father who is in secret, he sees what is done in secret. In other words, check out the irony of what he's saying. The unseen God sees what is unseen by everybody else. And that, that in and of itself is the full forever reward that our hearts want. It's the reward of him. That's the point of the word picture that Jesus is painting. The point is not that you literally hide every time you pray. Otherwise, I just broke Jesus' instructions right before I started preaching. Like The point's not that you hide before you pray. No, Jesus himself prays in public, and he assumes we will do the same. Jesus is about to give us the most famous form of prayer ever, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. You notice how it starts, our, the whole thing, all the pronouns are in the plural, because it's a prayer he expects us to pray together. Like, the point is not that no one ever sees us pray, but that our hearts only care about one person seeing, God. That's why we pray. That's why we worship. Because we want one reward, Him. And last week we saw that is the reward He gives. Through worship, He gives us the reward of Himself. Is this not what we sang just a moment ago? Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. It's why we're here. It's why we worship. Through worship, He gives us Himself. Through prayer, we get Him. We communicate with Him, commune with Him, are drawn closer to Him, conform to His will. Through prayer, Jesus is inviting you, me, He's inviting us away from empty worship and into the real thing so that we get the real reward, Him. That's what Jesus wants to hammer home. That's why he basically repeats, reviews the example of almsgiving, but this time with prayer. He does it to show us that it is possible. It's possible to make any act of worship empty if we're doing it to be seen by others and get the reward of recognition. Instead of doing it to be seen by God and get the reward of Him. It is possible to make any act of worship a horizontal to be seen by others it's impossible to make any act of worship a horizontal hypocritical show but jesus doesn't stop there 
That, that's where the example of almsgiving ended. But he doesn't stop there this time, though. He extends the example of prayer. He's going to give us another one. Another negative side, positive side. Another when, what, and why twice. What, why? Because the warning and the invitation need to be amplified. Warning gets bigger. Invitation is going to get clearer so that we might fully know how to heed the warning and answer the invitation. See it with me. See it this, this second time through, if you will, in verse 7. Jesus says, and when you pray, we've got a whole other when going on here. When you pray, do not, here's the negative example, what you're not to do, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So again, Jesus gives a negative side of example, gives us a when, a what, and a why. And again, the when's the same as it's been this whole time so far. When you pray. But the what? Did you notice that the what has changed? The warning has changed? What is Jesus warning us not to do? Look at it. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles. Ethnikos. The nations. In this context, it pretty just much means pagan nations who don't know the one true God. They've got all sorts of gods, divinities that they worship and that they relate to. But you don't relate to me the way they relate to their supposed gods. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Empty phrases. Batalogeo. It's just fun to say. It's it's a very rare uh, Greek word, and it might be onomatopoeic, uh, kind of like our word babble. You know, it, it's, it's meant to sound like what it means, battalageo. Basically, it's describing the pagan practice of using incantation-type language, magical hocus-pocus-type phraseology that you would just repeat and chant and say over and over again. You would just babble along. It was thought that these words, these phrases, these formulas, supposedly, if used repetitively, used enough, heaped up, this would get your deity's attention and persuade them, cajole them to act on your behalf. These aren't words that you actually mean. It's more like a magical formula to get what you one, it, it's kind of like when, uh, when you were a kid and somebody would force you to say please. Like even when you didn't mean it, they'd be like, what's the magic word? Please. And even though you didn't mean it, it would get you what you, what you wanted. That's what's going on here. You don't have to mean the words. The words itself is what's going to get you what you want. This is what the nations did when they prayed. And this is why they did it, to get what they want. You can see that in verse 7. Why do they heap up these empty phrases? Look at verse 7. For they think that they will be heard. This is why they do it. Get what I want. They think they will be heard for their many words. If I just pray the right words, batalogeo, all my magical incantation phrases, and if I pray them enough, polulo, po, it's a tongue twister, polulagia, many words. If I pray them enough, then I'll be heard and I'll get the reward of whatever it is that I want. Shades, 
Do you see? This example Jesus has given us about the nations and what they do. Do you see how it parallels, how it's the same as what we've already seen in that first example with the scribes and the Pharisees? It's the same because both groups are putting on a show. Through prayer, the nations we see right here are putting on a hypocritical show, just like the Pharisees, saying words they don't really mean. But simultaneously, do you see how this is different than what we saw with the scribes and the Pharisees? It's different because the nation's hypocritical show is not performed horizontally to be seen by others and rewarded with recognition. No, their hypocritical show is performed vertically to be seen by their gods that they might be rewarded for their religiosity. In other words, they heap up empty rituals repetitively not because any of these things mean anything. It's, it's all just a show. They're, they're acting like an employee who like kisses up to a boss even though they don't like their boss just because they want to get the promotion, want to get what they want. That's what they're doing, these empty religious actions, mere religiosity. That's what I mean by that. It's done to manipulate whatever God might be listening. Manipulate them into giving me what I want. It, this, this whole thing right here. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of 1 Kings 18. The prophet Elijah has a contest with the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? If you grew up in church and in Sunday school, if you didn't, it's totally okay. Prophet Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to see if their God, Baal, is real or the Lord is God. They both make sacrifices and prophets of Baal are supposed to call on their God and Then Elijah will call on his, the God who answers by fire from heaven is the one true God. Prophets of Baal go first. Do you remember how long they go? From morning to noon. From morning to noon, they are chanting, babbling on with their magical incantations, going through ritualistic actions. They cut themselves. They are heaping up empty phrases thinking they will be heard for their many words first kings eighteen twenty nine is telling it says as they raved on past midday there was no voice no one answered no one paid attention they thought they'd be heard for their many words that their vertical show would be rewarded with what they wanted the whole scene if you remember it makes elijah laugh he tells jokes um pretty racy jokes for for the bible he 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 makes fun of them he's like you got to be louder bell might be in the bathroom only that's not how he says it it's actually it's, it's too filthy for the pulpit pit elijah i'm very sorry but he laughs at them and we tend to laugh with him we're like silly pagans silly nations But Jesus' words in Matthew 6 force us to see that sometimes we are just as silly, are we not? Like, Like perhaps, perhaps we don't use our prayers as a horizontal show for others. We talked about that. Perhaps you've been like, I don't do that. But how often do our prayers become a vertical performance? A means by which we aim to manipulate God into giving us what we want. We we view him as almost not paying us any attention. 
And so through my prayer, I've got to somehow get his attention. Then we view him as somehow not for us. So through my prayer, I've got to persuade him, cajole him, manipulate him to, to act. And we think, we think, if I can just say the right thing, or if I can just pray in the right way or for the right amount of time, God will grant my request. I know we think like this, even if we don't think we do, because people say things like this to me all the time. They will say, I just didn't pray enough. Or, or I didn't pray hard enough. As if what makes prayer work is saying the right things. Battle ageo, getting those incantations just right. Or saying them enough. Lulagia, many, many words. Jesus warns us, this is how pagans relate to their deities. It's just how every other religion that comes to the divine approaches the divine. Shades, do you see? Do you see right here? The warning is getting bigger. Because Jesus warns us not just of horizontal hypocrisy, but of vertical religiosity. Going through external actions of empty religion, empty of any internal affection, all to try and get God to center on me and my glory and give me what I want. Like This, this is not how often we approach Prayer. Is this, is this why we go through acts of religious devotion? Is this, is this why we gather together each Sunday to get on God's good side so that he'll give us what we want? Is this why we give? Is this why we fast? Is it why we go through seasons like Lent? Is it why we read the words? Is it why we take communion? Is it why we pray? Ultimately, are we treating, through all of our acts of religious devotion, are we treating God like a great vending machine in the sky? Where if I'll just put in the right coinage of religious acts, then I get to pick my prize. And if the machine doesn't give me the blessing that I want when I put in the correct coinage, I get mad and I kick it. Shades, this is the heart. It's the heart of how pagan religions relate to their gods. It is not the heart of the Christian faith. And Jesus is warning us away from such empty worship, empty religiosity. And he invites us. He invites us into real worship. That invitation gets even clearer as he shows us that real worship is rooted in in real relationship. That's what we see in the when, the what, and the why of the positive side of this example. Look at it with me. Positive side, we see it in verses 8 and 9. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Every time in every example that Jesus walks through in chapter 6 with, with almsgiving, with prayer, with fasting, every time in every example, he has walked in order through the when, the what, and the why. But not here. Here and only here, at the literal center of this sermon. Lord's Prayer stands at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. The center 
first and foremost, he gives us what is most central. He gives us the why. Did you notice that? Before he ever tells us when we pray, here's what we are to pray, he first tells us why. Why our prayers should be different than the prayers of the nations. Don't don't be like the nations, the pagan nations. Here's why. Here's the why. For your Father. You don't relate to God the way the pagans relate to their gods. Some reluctant, distant deity. No, your Father. Your Father knows. He knows what you need before you ask Him. Before Jesus tells us when you pray, here's what to pray. He says, here's why your prayers are different. They're different because your prayers are rooted in a real relationship. Your prayers are different because they are prayers to your Father. Yes, your Father in heaven, but that doesn't emphasize that he is distant or that he is disconnected. Jesus makes sure we immediately knows that that's not the case. He says your Father in heaven, he knows, he knows you. He knows your needs before you ask him. It's not like he hasn't been paying attention to you and you've got to get his attention. It's not like he needs to be cajoled in order to be on your side. No, he knows. You don't have to put on a show to get him to notice you. He knows you. He's your father. And you don't have to manipulate him to meet your needs. Again, 1 Kings chapter 18. Compare the prayer of Elijah when it's his turn with the prayers of all the prophets of Baal. Go read the prayer of Elijah. Do you know how long it takes to pray out loud? Slowly. 30 seconds fire falls. Your father doesn't have to be manipulated to meet your needs. He's your father in heaven. What that stresses is that he is God over everything and he has all power and he works all that power to give you everything you need. So shades, you are free. Free from needing to beg and plead free from trying to convince God to relate to you lovingly. You're free to love him. You're free from trying to convince him to be centered on you and give you what you need. You're free to be centered on him because he is going to provide you everything that you need. You're free to be centered on him and his glory, which we've seen is what we ultimately need for the satisfaction of our souls. We need Him. In the very end of Matthew chapter 6, when we get to the end of this chapter, we are going to see that God has promised to provide you everything you need in order to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All these other things that you need to survive throughout the day, they will be given to you. Taken care of. Your focus doesn't even have to lie that you are free to seek him and him first. God has promised, we'll talk about all of what that means, unpack the difficulties of that and the questions that it causes when we get there. But right now, know this, and it is true. God has promised to meet our true needs for every day of your life that he has planned and plotted. He has promised to meet our true needs so that we are free to be centered on him and to seek him as the satisfaction of our souls, the real reward. Shades. This doesn't mean, 
this doesn't mean that in prayer we don't pour out our hearts, we don't come to God with our frustrations and our anger and our desires, and it doesn't mean that we don't ever present Him with our needs. No, we absolutely do. Next week, we're going to see that specifically as we walk through the Lord's Prayer at the end, at, 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 in the next passage. And we'll talk all about what that looks like. We'll see how even presenting our frustrations and our needs and all of these things are ultimately also centered on God's glory. And that is the satisfaction of our souls, the real reward. Is that not the very thing that we see right here, right now in verse 9? That God and his glory is what we ultimately need and one is the satisfaction of our souls? Jesus says, when you pray, here is the what, what you are to say. Look at verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's real prayer, coming out of a real relationship with God and who sees God, who sees God as the real reward. Do you see that, Shades? If you really know God as your Father, if you really know He is the ultimate reward of your soul, then is not your prayer really to have Him hallowed everywhere? God, I want you glorified everywhere seen as who you are worship for who you are worship for the reward that you are nothing would satisfy my heart more this prayer for the hallowing of god's name for his glory it's it is simultaneously a prayer for his glory and a prayer for our joy if he is the ultimate reward and i'm saying god put yourself on display i'm saying god give me you for my maximum satisfaction now and forever. Do you see that? Shades, do you see how, how a real relationship with God changes everything? That this is what Jesus puts at the heart of the sermon because this is what transforms our hearts from from hypocritical righteousness to holistic righteousness, from, from mere external action to actions flowing out of internal affection, from, from empty religiosity to real religion. The root of all of this transformation is a real relationship with God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has reconciled us to God. The Spirit has adopted us as sons and daughters so that we can now cry out to God as our Father. We have a real relation. We, we have a real relation. Did you notice that in verse 9? I mentioned it briefly earlier. When Jesus tells us what we are to pray, he gives it to us in the plural. Our Father. Our Father. Jesus begins this most famous prayer as a corporate prayer, something that we are to pray together, not alone, in a prayer closet, because that's not the point of the picture that he's been painting throughout this entire passage. No, it's not that we literally can't be seen when we pray. Jesus prayed in public. The point of everything that he's been telling us is not that we can't repeat stuff when we pray. Jesus repeated himself when he prayed. The point is not that we need to keep all of our prayers brief jesus had times when he prayed all night the point is that all of our prayers are to be real and real religion is rooted in a real relationship that's the point and you may notice right here i'm 
take a little aside here for just a second. We're almost done. I feel like I can chase a rabbit for a moment. I'm talking about a religiosity and religion and relationship. And, and it's common parlance, especially, I, I, this was very common when I was growing up, to contrast uh, religion and relationship. There was this phrase everybody loved to say when I was like youth group age, Christianity's not a religion, it's a relationship, which is, I, I get, I get the heart of what's being said, but it's a little ridiculous uh, because Christianity, this might be mind-blowing to everybody, is a religion. And Jesus in the Bible call it that. Jesus gives us religious practices. We're doing one right now. Preaching from the Word. He gives us the table. Gives us song. Gives us prayer. These are all religious practices. Jesus doesn't have a problem with religion. Doesn't have a problem with ritual. Gives us ritual. Doesn't have a problem with any of these things. What he has a problem with and what the Bible has a problem with is empty religion, religiosity. That, that's the problem. And the remedy, according to Scripture, for empty religion, religiosity, is real religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled, James would call it. Which, yes, is rooted in a real relationship. This is what Jesus is inviting us, all of us, into. This is the invitation that he is making clearer as he teaches us to pray. He's inviting us not into an isolated relationship with God. That's the problem of contrasting religion and relationship. Is The idea of Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, very easily leads to the next logical step of, therefore, it's just about Jesus and me. And there is no such thing as isolated solo Christianity. Jesus shows us that in the very way that he teaches us to pray. We are to pray, to pray. We are to pray our Father. He's inviting us not into an isolated relationship with God, but into a real religion where we are connected with other Christians as brothers and sisters, and we all share a real relationship with our Father. And together we seek the hallowing of his name. Shades, do, do you see? Do you see that through the example of prayer... Jesus has made the warning bigger and he's made the invitation clearer so that we may know how, how to heed the warning and answer the invitation. Shades, heed the warning. Heed the warning that hypocrisy isn't just possible horizontally but also vertically. Heed that warning and come away from empty worship, religiosity. Heed that warning by answering the invitation. The invitation to real worship, which is an invitation to a real relationship. Jesus has made this invitation so clear by showing us it's rooted, real worship is rooted in a real relationship with the Father. Will you come to Him? Come to the Father through faith in the Son. Do you hear the Holy Spirit inviting you right now? Come to Him. Not through empty religiosity. No, you're invited into a real relationship with your Father in heaven through real prayer.